Maximize Your Influence is your podcast for the latest persuasion, sales, and negotiation techniques. Our mission is to help you influence on command, anyone, anytime, anywhere. Your host is the author of Persuasion IQ, Laws of Charisma, and the best-selling book, Maximum Influence. Now, your host, Kurt Mortensen. Muito bem! Welcome back to all my Portuguese listeners out there and everyone to Maximize Your Influence. This is Podcast 362. As I reveal the secrets, the secret sauce, spill the beans on how to tell an engaging, powerful, captivating story that persuades without detection. I'm telling you, it's a power skill of all charismatic, influential people you need to have. Stay tuned as I take a deep dive and give you the formula system to be able to do that. Hope you're having a great week this week. You're achieving your goals, you're persuading with power, you're influencing without detection, and you're able to lead the leader or whatever it is that you're trying to do. We all persuade and influence for a living. Just don't get stuck in those cheesy high lactose old school closing skills that no longer work, that are no longer effective, that repel more than they persuade. And if you think you're innocent, think again. Persuasion and influences change dramatically. Spent this week doing a webinar on how to negotiate the power skills in advanced course on not persuasion, not influence, not leadership, but negotiating because it's different. You see, persuasion is more active. It's about the laws of persuasion. It's more about using the right tools. With persuasion, you bring someone to your point of view. Influence is actually a higher form of persuasion. With influence, it's your trust, it's your charisma. People do it because of who you are, not what you say, what you do. I mean, that could be part of it, maybe in the past, but when you are truly influential, people do it because of who you are. They know you've got their back. They know you as a person. So that's why influence is a higher form of persuasion. But now we have to talk about negotiation. It's very different. Persuasion, influence, you bring someone to your point of view, you've convinced them. You got them to do what you want them to do and like doing it. And with influence and charisma, you got them to recruit others to do it. Now, negotiation, we've talked about this. Give, take, give, take, and you meet in the middle. Remember the rule? I'm going to say it again and again. You persuade first or influence first, negotiate second. Too many times we take the easier route and we just meet in the middle, which, you know, sometimes that's okay. When your job's on the line, income's on the line. Your company's reputation's on the line. Sometimes you need to persuade. Sometimes you need to influence. But again, when you got two persuaders in a room, a lot of times that turns into negotiation. Those are good skills to have. Or go to MaximizeYourInfluence.com for information on the online negotiation course. Of course, get your free Persuasion IQ assessment with a little bonus. And get the free book, the new edition of Maximum Influence. You get it for free. Just pick it up a little shipping and handling. Of course, everything else is needed there, including the archives and access to Influence University. There's the plug. Let's move on. Let's talk about it. Let's get into the persuasion. This time, not the ninja, not the blunder, but the blinja. I'm going to combine two and talk about how these things can help or hurt your ability to persuade and influence. It's always good to learn from other people. The good things they do, benchmark those. The bad things they do, get rid of those. Here's the ninja part. I'm going to compare two retail settings. This was at a car dealership, and I was helping a neighbor. She needed to get her car fixed, so I was going to meet her down or give her a ride home. She's up there in years. 
needed a little help, and I was happy to help. So I was there before she got there, and I saw her pull in. Man, what a ninja. They knew who she was. I don't know if she had a little sensor on her car, if they knew by the license plate. They opened the door. They helped her out. Again, they knew her name, and there was even a compliment on her looks that day. Boost to the self-esteem. Now, there was a weird sound in the car. Something was going on. They listened intently. They gave reassurance that they were going to fix it. They were going to take care of it. There was even a promise of when it would be finished. And they offered to have her wait in a nice room while they were fixing it with beverages and treats. Or they offered to take her wherever she wanted to go in their little van. Of course, I was there to help her out. Didn't need to do any of those things. But wow, she's loyal. Now, I know this place. She's going to pay top dollar for this service, for this esteem, for this promise. They were going to take good care of it. But people will pay more for good service. That's why we don't always eat at McDonald's versus say, hey, Ruth Chris, man, if you want a good steak, that's a good place to go. But you know, many times it's worth it. So I want to compare that to my latest visit to Walmart Blunder. Don't, don't, don't. I happen to be there. I really don't shop there that much. But every once in a while, I need something inexpensive, something cheap. It's a good place to go. They do fight on price. That's what they do. You know, it's probably the cheapest place in town to buy whatever you need. And it was a little electronic accessory and had a question, a quick question, a fairly easy question, but I couldn't find anybody Tried to ring the bell, tried to get a little help, no one around. But of course, you know, you get what you pay for. That's the blunder. I was willing to spend money, but just that one question that I didn't know stopped me from purchasing. Now, I know I shouldn't expect service here, but I was there getting other stuff already. And I needed this, but I finally went to Amazon, went to their frequently asked questions, found the results, and bought it online. You know, you get what you pay for. People know that, so don't fight on price. And if you are, go to the previous podcast on how to build the value instead of fighting on price. Any rookie, non-skilled person can fight on price. So that is our Blinja of the show. Which brings us to our geeky scholarly article. Comes from the Harvard Business Review, American Institute of Stress, American Psychological Association, and Anne Sugar about how to stay cool under pressure without appearing cold. So the American Institute of Stress did a little research and found that 40% of workers believe their jobs are very or extremely stressful. And of course, during this fun pandemic we're having now, the perception has been intensified. We're feeling more and more stress. And part of that stress is the economy. I'm sure we could throw politics into that. That 7 in 10 adults are feeling significant stress right now. And that doesn't even count the anxiety or depression or stress the kids are feeling with pandemics and school and everything that's happening there. Now, we already know that everyone doesn't feel the effects of stress the same way. Now, if you're a manager that handles stress with ease, it might make your team more stressed because you might give off that cold impression that you don't care about work or your colleagues. And that's just because you're feeling cool under the stress. You're able to deal with that. And I've seen upper managers handle stress better than lower managers and some coworkers because I guess they're more used to it. Or maybe that's why they were promoted because their ability to deal with that stress. But the challenge is your colleagues read you as indifferent or even cold. So here are some ways to change it according to the Harvard Business Review. 
So maybe if you're giving a presentation and it's easy for you, you're not showing any stress, your manager might think or your coworkers might think you're not taking it seriously. And I see that all the time teaching public speaking and persuasive presentations that some people are stressed, they make mistakes, it looks like they're taking it seriously, but the ones that are really good, they come across as professional, that it's easy. And the reality is it wasn't necessarily easy for them, but they were prepared for that. And we're going to talk about that. So the article says, never assume your manager knows what you're thinking. Because when others around you feel stress, address it head on. Address the stress. Let them know there are ways to handle it. You see, most leaders, influential people, great managers have these coping mechanisms that help them handle the stress. And they figure everyone else has the same mechanisms. And the more ways you can teach them to prepare or handle for this stress, the more that will resonate for them. Just because it works for you doesn't mean it's going to work for them. One of these is over-preparing. So if you're giving a presentation, whatever it is, if you over-prepare, you practice, that fear erodes away, that stress erodes away. That's for a presentation or anything that you do. Another thing you do is change mindset. You know, really, is it that big of a deal? Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Get them past worry, that negative mindset. Vision, give them hope for the future. That could be through positive affirmations. That could be giving them smaller pieces. Because when the brain gets overwhelmed, it shuts down. And if you can put it into smaller, manageable, bite-sized pieces, maybe daily goals instead of weekly goals, or weekly goals instead of monthly goals, then it's less stressful. But your role as a manager, as a leader, is to alleviate your team's stress. Because we all know when you're stressed, not only does it trigger bad emotions, but it hurts your health. So let me add, just being aware that it happens. Giving your team tools. Let them know that you're concerned. That you have stress too, but you have these coping mechanisms. But the big piece there is over-prepare. The more you're prepared, that stress tends to erode away. For example, if you're giving a presentation... Most people wait to the last second, stress. Think about all the bad things that could happen, more stress. All the mean things your coworkers are going to say, more stress. It's in an hour, more stress. Got to get my PowerPoint done, even more stress. Get there just in the nick of time, even more stress. And you've never really prepared. It only sounds good in your head. You've done your PowerPoint and that's not persuasive and that doesn't reduce your stress very much. So one of the recommendations is finish your presentation at least a week in advance. Bounce it off a coworker or another manager to see what they think. Practice the conversation, the presentation three times before the meeting. That reduces stress. A lot of the stress is self-afflicted and shouldn't be as strong as you're making it. And the other key here is be empathetic to others feeling that stress. Because if you don't get it, you're not empathetic. Oh, you shouldn't be stressed. You come across as cold indifferent, mean, and non-empathetic. <laughs> None of those are good. And sometimes you're even viewed as uncaring. So the suggestion was just a simple question. What can I do to help you? What do you need? What tools do you need? How can I serve you? Whatever it is you need to say, even if it's just a listening ear, that could keep you from the cold, indifferent, uncaring category. So be empathetic to other stress levels. Teach them your coping mechanisms and show them that you care. Just a little piece of advice from the Harvard Business Review and maximize your influence. And of course, I'll put a link to that article at maximizeyourinfluence.com. And we have this week more listener email. Oh boy! And of course, when you have listener email, you get free access to Influence University. That's the gold level. There's also a free level if you're interested to get started on advanced tools. 
This is Pete from Australia. So I saw you speak in the United States at this, I'll just say, large pharmaceutical conference. I was given the keynote address there. He says, and this is very flattering. Thank you, Pete. This is what he says. He says, I was mesmerized by your presence and your ability to tell an engaging story that hypnotized the audience. I will tell you time stood still. Kim, thanks, Pete. I always love a good compliment. Then he says, what is your secret? What is your structure and or preparation? All right. That leads us into our content today, the ability to tell a great story. I love the words you use there, Pete. And these are key, mesmerized, present, engaging, hypnotized. Those are all things that stories do. So how do you tell an engaging, powerful, captivating story that persuades without detection? That's the first thing. You've heard me say it before. Stories put people in a hypnotic trance. They persuade without detection. They give them solutions when they weren't even looking for a solution. And it makes them easier to influence. And it connects you together so they like you more. Now, of course, it depends on the story and how you tell the story and the type of story. And was it a relevant story? But hey, stories engage. In fact, one of my early mentors, Jim Rohn, powerful persuader, great keynote speaker, very famous. I had the privilege of selling his seminars and persuading people to attend. And we had the opportunity, it was a team of us, to do dinner with Jim Rohn. I wasn't quite sure if he knew who I was. I mean, he's this big, famous person. I was just this young grunt. And I was doing pretty good as far as selling his seminars. We were at dinner and he looked at me. He says, are you Kurt Mortensen? I said, yes. He says, tell me about your goals, your dreams, your aspirations. What is it you really want to accomplish in your life? And wow, that's a great question. So I told him what I wanted, and it wasn't happening as fast as I wanted. And of course, there's a few people to blame on the way and a few things that weren't my fault. And he cut me off mid-sentence, and this changed my life forever. Put everything in perspective when he said, Kurt, for things to change, you must change. And for things to get better... You must get better. Wow. Words of wisdom cut like a knife changed my life forever. In fact, let me add a word to that. For your income to change, you must change. And for your income to get better, you must get better. See, I just told you a story. Put things into perspective. And I launched seminars with this story to let people know if we want to change, if we want to get better, if we want to make more money, it's up to us. We can't blame. We can't point fingers. Because when you blame and point fingers, you don't take ownership. And there's nothing to fix. And when there's nothing to fix, nothing changes. When nothing changes, you stay broke or whatever habit you're trying to fix stays there. So that's the key to a story. I'm telling you, stories are a power tool. When I was doing research for laws of charisma, charismatic, influential leaders are great storytellers because stories captivate. They grab attention. They bring people together. They connected with you. And it helps you transfer values or knowledge to other people. And it also demonstrates who you are. If you want people to get to know you, to empathize with you, to want to be around you, you tell them a story. So here are a few pointers. Number one, what is your point? You have to think to yourself, what do you want people to think after the story? What do you want them to feel after the story? What do you want them to do differently as a result of your story? Can the story generate intrigue and arouse curiosity? What objection are you trying to solve? That is your story. Hey, you should buy life insurance resistance. You tell me what to do. Hey, let me tell you about this husband, four children, needed life insurance, wanted life insurance, put it off. Oh, tragic accident. Wow, you're solving that objection with the story. Now, stories also entertain. They can arouse laughter with a sense of humor. You might use a story to get skeptical people to open their mind. Or bottom line, get them to believe something different. That's the key part of a story. Now, the next question, or number two, is what type of story should you use? 
Well, any story that can teach a lesson or illustrate and simplify a point. Stories are great for social validation, for someone else that had the same concern, the same objection, the same fear. They got past it and bam, look at the results. I mean, look at infomercials, social validation, their story. Wow, I was down and out. This happened. Now, all of a sudden, I made $20,000 in three hours. I mean, you know the drill. (laughs) Okay, that's the power of a story. Another key element of a story is keeping it short. Two to three minutes is about the right amount. You want to use as much emotion as possible. Use your body language as possible. Use as much humor as possible, depending on the story. And paint the picture. We need to be able to see it, taste it, touch it, feel. It's like listening to a movie when we hear your story. Time stands still. Now, the key, of course, is make it a relevant story that ties back to your main point and solves the objection in the minds of your audience. And then the next element is deliver it with conviction. Vary your voice. Make sure you've practiced it. Don't memorize it. Live it. Have good pacing and timing. And own that story. Transfer the emotions of that story. You're like, well, how do I tell a good story? What's the structure? Well, let me give you a structure to your story. And this is not always set in stone, but let me just give you a general areas as you look at your stories so you can tell them in the right way. Now, when you structure a great story, there's five steps. The first one is the setup. This is where you make your character of the story. It could be you or somebody else likable and vulnerable. And when I mean vulnerable, maybe they were wrong. They were taken advantage of. Somebody did something to them. You've grabbed people's attention. The second one, what is the goal of the character? So the setup, this nice person's down and out, was fired from their job, the economy. The goal of the character was to be financially independent. See, the goal of the character, again, same as the audience. They want to be financially independent. They want to lose weight. They want to have better relationships. They want to have more obedient kids, whatever it is. And then all of a sudden, number three, conflict. They're getting kicked out of their apartment. They've lost their car. Now, this conflict can be either internal or external. So it can come from within the conflict of what they're having, their relationships, or external, being kicked out of their home, their car, getting robbed. The best piece here is you need to make them the victim or yourself. And there's going to be a villain in that story. Somebody that just mm, wronged them. So they hit this wall. So whatever blocking them is what's also blocking your audience. Now they're intrigued. They're listening. And the fourth thing is they found a victory, a solution. And what's surprising, that's the best type of solution. And of course, that solution is what you want your audience to do. Is your product, your service, your idea, whatever you want them to do. Because after that victory, you reveal that number five, that aha, this is the lesson learned. Now you can adapt and mold it however you want, but now you have a structure that you can follow to build that story, just like a good movie. This is what a good movie looks like, following this structure, step by step. Number one, set up. Two, goal of the character. Three, conflict. Four, victory. The five, the aha, the lesson learned. That is the key to great stories. I'm telling you, you can do this. This is a power tool. And Pete, it took practice. In that keynote address, I believe I had two hours, I practiced that story. And that's my recommendation to you. Read Dr. Seuss to a five-year-old, see if they keep their attention. Practice your story on other people. Get a story list on your phone, on your computer of stories that you've lived. I guarantee you have hundreds of them. Stories that you hear that are incredible. These stories can change lives. So create a story list so when you need it, 
It's there. You don't have to stress about it. I guarantee you have 100 stories. You'll get a couple every week. You remember, write it down, write it down, write it down. You'll hear a good story. Write it down, write it down. That is the key. So ask yourself, what objection do you want your audience to solve? What do you want them to believe? What do you want them to do? And that is your story. And that is the key to telling an engaging, powerful, hypnotizing, captivating story that'll persuade without detection. So if you want more information on storytelling, I would like a persuasive presentation. I'll put a link on that. In fact, let me give you a special November deal. I'll link that up to maximize your influence where I'll take everything I talked about today and put it one special deal and give you over 50% off because you guys are awesome and you're here. You're learning to persuade. You're not watching TV. Well, maybe you are watching too much, but at least you're here listening to this and it'll make a big difference. So thanks for being here. Practice your stories. Start your store list. Again, categorize them by stories that you've lived, stories that you borrow. Watch other great storytellers and influencers. And this will be a powerful tool for you in your toolbox of influence. And I guarantee when you master this, you will persuade with power. 